show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello. For some drinks, trivia, and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. This is part two of our poison special for Spooktober. So well done on consuming part one and surviving, if indeed you did. And here is part two, starting with a sign that all might not be well. <coughs> um, obviously, I've got to say some more about ancient Greece. Uh, I thought this was the perfect time to talk about how Socrates died. Sure. <laughs> yep. So Socrates, um, everyone's favourite uh, ancient Greek philosopher. And by everyone, I mean, you know, mine. Um, <coughs> oh, I am actually choking. Uh, oh, no, God, it's it's happening. Right. It was, yeah, I was just empathising so much with, um, with Socrates. Yeah, uh, my favourite philosopher and yours after Diogenes. Um, so he died by drinking poison in 399... BCE, which was a result of his trial and conviction by the Athenian government on charges of impiety um, for disrespecting the city's gods and corrupting the youth of Athens. So here is kind of what happened. Uh, he was known for his unconventional philosophical ideas, his habit of questioning Athenian societal norms and beliefs. Um, and he defended himself at this trial, which was the Athenian custom, but his defence was characterised by this refusal to compromise in any way on his philosophical principles. <coughs> Shut up. <laughs> so he, um, which means you know, he didn't plead for any kind of mercy, he didn't try to escape punishment, um, but instead he just kept trying to assert his commitment to pursuing truth and wisdom through questioning and dialogue, which, you know, you would hope is not that controversial now, still kind of is, uh, but in the day absolutely was, because you had to believe in the idea of the city, uh, you know, as your home, you had to, you weren't allowed to question authority in any way, and that's what they mean by corrupting the youth, he was sort of giving them ideas that they should question authority. Um, and you know he was he was he was um, a thorn in people's side, but he was also quite well respected. And so the point of saying like he didn't defend himself and he stood by his principles is, you know, as much as saying that he probably could have got off more lightly than a death sentence. Um, you know, he probably could have been exiled or or whatever. But he uh, it's the way he comported himself in the trial that was really his own doom. So there was a jury of 500 Athenian citizens that found him uh, guilty, but only by, by a, a very narrow margin. And what happens in these trials is you get sort of your first result and then you're allowed to sort of ask for mercy or for it to be more lenient. And then normally kind of it goes your way. So he was given this chance to propose anything other than the death penalty, but he refused to do that because he didn't want to ask for a punishment that he believed he did not deserve. And so then they came back and they sentenced him to death by drinking a cup of poisoned hemlock. Um, so he accepted the death sentence uh, without any kind of resistance. He was brought to prison. Um, he talked philosophical ideas with his friends and followers. He drank the poisoned hemlock um, in the presence of his friends and students and his death was said to be peaceful. His last words are recorded by Plato in his uh, dialogue, Phaedo. And um, <laughs> here we go. Last words. Crito, I owe a cock to Asclepius. <laughs> Will you remember to pay the debt? <laughs> I own Asclepius, a big unit. <laughs> <laughs> I said that for your benefit. Um, so what was that about? So he, Socrates is making reference to Asclepius, who's the Greek god of healing and medicine. And it's believed that Socrates is expressing his belief that death is a form of healing, a release for the soul, that he's about to be cured of the suffering associated with life. And the debt that he mentions, offering a cock, 
um, was the customary uh, religious ritual associated with being cured of an illness or released from suffering. So, you know, chicken. Um, <laughs> so his final words are really kind of there to underscore his idea, I suppose, that the soul is more immortal than life um, and it should be embraced as a transition. But um, it certainly wasn't like a formalised religion sort of statement because that was part of the reason he was in trouble in the first place. Anyway, he's um, he's pretty great. I'm going to give him some, some quotes from him in a minute, but first I thought I'd better mention Hemlock. Uh, so, Conium maculatum um, is a highly poisonous biennial herbaceous flowering plant, which is part of the carrot family. <laughs> Don't get those confused. It's, it's native to Europe and North Africa. All parts of the plant are toxic, um, especially the seeds and roots uh, when ingested. Under the right conditions, plants grow quite rapidly. Um, they can reach heights of two and a half metres. And it's got a distinctive odour that is generally considered to be unpleasant uh, when you smell it on the wind. The hollow stems are usually spotted with dark maroon colour before the plant dies and it becomes dry and brown after completing its life cycle. Uh, the hollow stems of this toxic plant are deadly for up to three years after the plant has died. Six to eight hemlock leaves are, can be fatal for an adult human. Uh, the name, conium, uh, comes from the Greek word for spin or whirl, which probably alludes to the dizzying effects of the plant's poison when you've ingested it. And macula means spotted, so that's referring to spots on the stalk. All right, I'm going to give you eight quotes from Socrates. Mm. Pick your favourite. Okay. Um, one, an unexamined life is not worth living. Two, the only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. Three, the secret of change is to focus all of your energy not on fighting the old, but on building the new. Four, to find yourself, think for yourself. Five, I cannot teach anybody anything, I can only make them think. Six, I am not an Athenian or a Greek, but a citizen of the world. Seven, education is the kindling of a flame, not the filling of a vessel. And eight, beware the barrenness of a busy life. Ooh. I think number two is my fave. The only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not really thought to me that one. Gonna pass that one without <laughs> comment. Um. <laughs> no, Socrates wasn't being shady specifically to you. Um, he was, no, he was just trying to say like, don't take anything for granted. Don't take any knowledge for granted. Think about it for yourself. Examine it. Cross-examine it. Uh, don't believe things just because someone who says they know more than you tell you something. Which, you know, is advice for both of us, really. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there we go. Socrates. Obviously, I want to know more about arsenic. You do? A bit of arsenic? Yeah. All right. What do you want to know? Get your arsenic out. <laughs> Get your arsenic out. I've... It's taken a lot not to make any arse jokes up until now. We're talking about arsenic. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I've done it now. Thank I've opened, you. That, opened that door. <laughs> um, Un unbuttoned that flap. You're going to take it too far, haven't you? <laughs> right, arsenic. <laughs> uh, it was the most common form of pesticide until World War II, uh, but it was still used in the 70s and 80s beyond then. Uh, because of its toxicity, it's been used as a pesticide, fungicide and herbicide for a very, very long time. Uh, before it's found its way to vineyards, um, arsenic had a history similar to many other naturally occurring elements, now known to be lethal, like lead, that we've already spoken about. Um, it was used as a medicine to treat skin and lung diseases across ancient civilizations, um, and it was also used in skin lightening cosmetics in Victorian England. Uh, and I think it's worth pointing out at this point, um, it is naturally occurring. So um, arsenic tends to be found throughout the world with other metal deposits. So while you might find gold, silver, copper, lead, there's often arsenic as well. I've um, found arsenic in the wild before. Have you? What did you do on, with it? Yeah, on a, on a coastal rock face. Um, and I think it was because it was near the, um, it was near the tin mines of Cornwall. Mm. So, like when they, when you're near a mine, if you've got a mine near a coast, you tend to find arsenic deposits on the rock as it as it leaches out. How did you know it? What did I do with it? Chips them off and took it home. <laughs> How did I know? 
it's uh, they're white crystals mm -hmm. and i knew because of its proximity to the mines uh, i didn't lick it oh, um but i i did i did take some home <laughs> just in case <laughs> just in case you need to write a letter <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so it started to be used as a treatment in american vineyards orchards and cotton fields sometime in the late 19th century its main use was to control mold and pests uh, it's quite a tricky task um, lots of american growers look to the chemical treatments that had been used effectively in europe in most scenarios the biggest issue is molds um, gray mold or powdery mildew or downy mildew those are the big three that have been very problematic for vineyards for hundreds of years so if they were using arsenic uh, it was probably effective against some of those molds it's basically toxic to everything uh, these treatments included organic and inorganic arsenic compounds, including monosodium methane arsenate, calcium arsenate, lead arsenate, and copper arsenate. Um, they're not the nicest of names, so they were often commercialised with catchy names. Um, one of the more popular ones was Paris Green. Um, if you look back on where it started, you get stories that you can't like necessarily source but there are tales like a french farmer spilt some paris green which is just basically copper arsenic he accidentally tipped copper arsenic on a field noticed it killed all the insects and thought ah oh, insecticide and so made some marketing bullshit up to sell his paris green it's really not a good idea in general to go oh that killed lots of things let's use it more <laughs> that'll work <laughs> The main logical problem of most pesticides, um, as detailed in, in um, Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. <laughs> um, the, the, the Paris Green one, is that the one that was used in wallpaper? Um, have, you, have, you read, have you seen I about wallpaper? I didn't read anything about that. I did a bit of digging so, into Paris Green, but didn't find out about wallpaper. In 19th century, green wallpaper was really popular in homes, and that was made with arsenic. <laughs> so... Um, it, on the one hand, probably pre prevented moles yeah. uh, in the wallpaper, but on the other hand, possibly poisoned a few people as well. Gosh. Well, there, there were adverts, like colour adverts. Uh, I found one from 1885 of a farmer looking very happy in one hand with his big can of Paris green, and in the other hand he's spraying it on his land and there's just lots of pests and roaches running away from him. Um, so yeah, Paris green, it was an inorganic compound very bright green so perhaps it was the wallpaper one uh, that bright green was a product of the blend of arsenic copper and lime oxide um, this particularly deadly combo was also known as copper acetoarsenide um, it was used to rid vineyards of mold it was also used to preserve bodies for burial create vibrant hues in paintings and even kill parisian sewer rats a real, you know, all in one. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but whatever form it took, there was very little understanding at the time of the lasting effects that it could have on the land and to the people who used them. Um, because the arsenic was often applied near the barn of the farms, they would often dump the leftover pesticide when they were done. So there was usually a hot spot where they would like dump that bit every time. Uh, unfortunately, the lasting effects of these hotspots and arsenic have never actually been studied in depth. They likely never will because it would either be moved around or diluted with rain. We don't know how long it would last there. But there have been some studies on the presence of arsenic in wine. Um, they point to research by a certain Mohammed Ashraf Ali. Uh, he is the professor of civil engineering at Bangladesh University. Uh, he looked at whether or not the arsenic would dissipate or languish in the soil over time. Uh, he claimed that it's not likely to be dissolved or washed out by flood or rainwater in oxidised condition due to its affinity for iron, manganese, aluminium and other minerals in soil. Um, it's unclear just how detrimental organic or inorganic arsenic may be to biodiversity and soil health of the vineyards since they rose to popularity more than a century ago. So it's all a little bit vague. 
Uh, but the good news is that arsenic-based products are no longer used on US or European vineyards or in other types of farming. Um, but it is worth noting that the substance has been replaced by some similarly questionable <laughs> synthetic treatments. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure DDT took over from arsenic <laughs> exactly. and that was possibly worse. Not the best. Um, Paris Green was phased out by about 1905. Um, it was causing severe side effects in those who came into contact with it, including chronic illness and death. Um, it was also noted how deadly arsenic could be in larger doses. Um, in 1932, the New York Times had an article that detailed the poisoning of some French sailors. Uh, many stated that they'd been feeling ill for many months. Um, arsenic was found in the wine rations, and experts declared that it may be traced to the use of poison to combat blight on the vines. Or it might have been at that point that arsenic would have been introduced to the wines to diminish acidity. Um, so it's quite interesting there that the experts couldn't agree where the arsenic had come from. So it just goes to show how prolific it was in its use. People were just putting mm. it everywhere. Um, other inorganic arsenic-laced chemicals began falling out of favour with the introduction of other synthetic treatments after World War Two. Um, one study said that the lead arsenic was phased out after it was recognised that its use was associated with health effects in orchard workers and an increasing concern that arsenic residues on fruits were a public health concern. So like, why is it taking you so long, guys? <laughs> why is this happening? <laughs> Um, it wasn't until 1988 that the Environmental Protection Agency finally banned acutely toxic lead arsenic. Uh, they noticed that its side effects in, like skin, bladder and lung cancer, severe gastrointestinal damage, uh, vascular collapse, coma and death. 1988 though, that's crazy that it took that long. Um, calcium arsenate and some organic arsenic herbicides, however, are still legal, but they are highly regulated and they are not allowed for use on food crops. Um, while these products had a clear devastating impact, there's no data to show how widespread the health complications have been. Um, presumably, farmers at the turn of the century weren't using much protective gear, so they were likely to be ingesting it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, people were applying it as a cosmetic cream to lighten skin. Um, so it wasn't the only exposure in the environment and people were quite literally dosing themselves with it. They were farming with it, putting it on their skin. They were, like you say, using it in painting with wallpapers. It was everywhere. <laughs> um... So while it's been phased out, and it's not so much a problem today, um, as I mentioned, it still does occur naturally in the earth, arsenic. So it's not possible to remove it entirely from um, the environment or food supply. So mitigation is key. And the presence of arsenic in wine today isn't unheard of, um, but it's in very small amounts. There's been a long time since there was a big headline grabbing kind of, you know, poisoning incident. Mm -hmm. It's more likely now to be found in very small quantities and the wine pretty much isn't tested for it at all. Um, but there was a lawsuit. There was a class action suit in 2015 in California that alleged that 28 wineries had created wines with dangerously high levels of inorganic arsenic. So the standard set for safe levels of inorganic arsenic in drinking water is a maximum of 10 parts per billion. Uh, presumably that's based on the recommendation that somebody's drinking around eight glasses of water a day. So if there's 10 parts per billion in, a, in your water and you're drinking eight glasses a day, that's safe. Um, however, there's no kind of mitigation or rules with how many PPBs of arsenic there should be in wine. Um, so it was a bit of a tricky one when they took it to the, like, the, the class action suit. Um, they'd found that the average content in the wine was 23 parts per billion and they were claiming that that was far too high because obviously drinking water is 10 and this is 23. But understandably the wine producers kind of hit back and said, well, it doesn't matter that it's a slightly higher content, people drinking aren't drinking it like water, it's wine. <laughs> so it's not an issue. 
Um, and eventually, it, you should it's... you should probably take note of that advice. <laughs> well, it got thrown out of court. The 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 judge threw it out of court. He said, "Well, yeah, you you they've done nothing wrong." Um, essentially, wine and other alcoholic beverages are subject to federal and state regulation, and they they've done all of that. There were there's no regulation for arsenic in their wine. Um, they just had to have requirements for consumer warnings and the right labelling. They adhered to all of that. Um, so yeah, nothing came of it. But the people that were contesting it vowed to not let it kind of go because it was an inorganic arsenic pesticide that had been found in the wine. And obviously inorganic arsenic pesticides had been banned. So they were saying, you know, why is it there? This is not good enough. Um, Which takes us back to the question of, well, does it stay in the soil for centuries? Can it, you know, still be there? Um, It is likely. So... Back to Mohammed's uh, research papers, it's likely that it was um, absorbed from the soil. Um, it is unclear if it's from the previous era, era's pesticides or fertilizers, or if it could even be naturally occurring in the soil. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you can have arsenic in your wine. <laughs> um, yeah, we we call that reasonable doubt. Reasonable the doubt. There, like I said, it's not regulated, um, but the. International Organization of Vine and Wine recommend that a limit of 200 micrograms of arsenic per litre is probably what you should be aiming for. Um, But even so, you'd have to drink approximately six and a half bottles of wine containing 30 micrograms per litre of inorganic arsenic in, in order to get there. So you'd probably have alcohol poisoning as well as arsenic poisoning. <laughs> we've said that a lot we've said that a lot with you know the absinthe episode was the first time we spoke about that i think was that with anything that people say oh that's a toxic element of that drink it's like well you'd have alcohol poisoning before anything else happens exactly so we can all rest assured that the arsenic in our wine is fine good <laughs> um have you have you seen the film arsenic and old lace i have not uh, so it was um, it was a play originally, and then they made it into a film in 1944 with um, Cary Grant mm-hmm. in it, um, and it's it's set on Halloween, and it's a comedy. It's a classic like light Halloween comedy. Obviously, Cary Grant is very charming as usual. He discovers that his aunts have been uh, secretly murdering renters at the boarding house. Um, so, I mean, I, I recommend uh, giving it a watch. It's delightful. What you might not know is it's inspired by real events. Oh. <laughs> Despite <laughs> the fact they turned it to a, to a comedy of Cary Grant in 44. Um, so here's the story. Uh, Amy Archer Gilligan and her first husband, James Archer, opened a small nursing home uh, slash boarding house in Windsor, Connecticut, uh, around 1907-08 and um, it was called the Archer Home for Elderly People and Chronic Invalids. Uh, they typically have fewer than 10 boarders at a time uh, so understandably there would be some deaths among elderly tenants. The first one was in 1908, the second in 1909 but after that there's a dramatic increase. Between 1910 and 1916 there were 64 more deaths uh, at the home. One of the earliest deaths was actually Amy's husband, James, who died in 1910 at the age of 50. Um, Amy might have been late 30s, early 40s. Uh, The cause of death at the time was Bright's disease, uh, which is an older medical term referring to kidney disease. Um, And that may have been what it was. Uh, However, her second husband, Michael Gilligan, uh, in late 1913, she married her second husband in 1913 three months later at the age of 56 um, his cause of death was recorded as valvular heart disease and acute bilious attack um, so digestive problems or stomach problems or something uh, this time her husband's death seemed a bit more suspicious uh, though he was a widower with sons he left his entire estate to Amy and uh, he wasn't the only person whose death uh, benefited her so um the boarders could choose to pay either on a weekly rate in which case 
it wouldn't benefit her to bump them off. Or they could pay like a one-off fee of $1,000 for lifetime care. Not a great idea if you're the boarder. Some of her boarders seem to die suddenly after paying her a lifetime fee or signing over some amount of money to her. Um, so by the time her second husband died, uh, people in town already began to notice that the death rate was suspiciously high. Uh, but it wasn't until another boarder died a few months later, in May 1914, that there was any kind of investigation. So that was the 61-year-old called Franklin Andrews. The cause of death was noted as gastric ulcers. But when his sister, Nellie Pierce, was cleaning out his things, she found correspondence between her brother and Amy, in which Amy was pressuring him for money. So she contacted the state attorney, um, and uh, reporters began to investigate the Archer House deaths as well. Um, the, the reporter who wrote the obituaries had already noticed the frequent deaths at the Archer House, as you would if you have to write them pretty much every week. Um, and had previously discovered, as part of their investigations from the Windsor Drugstore, that Amy had been purchasing arsenic multiple times, uh, supposedly to kill rats and bedbugs. Uh, they began looking at the death certificates and noticed that many of the boarders seemed to experience sudden deaths or stomach problems, and they compared the rates with other boarding houses um, and noting that the death rate was, in fact, much higher. So the state investigation um, exhumed five bodies of people who had died at the boarding house. Um, at the time, embalmers would use um, arsenic anyway when preparing a body, so the presence in a corpse system wouldn't necessarily indicate poisoning, but they looked at Franklin Andrews, her second husband's stomach, and it had enough arsenic to kill several people in it, uh, strongly indicating that someone had poisoned him. Um, and of the other four bodies also showed signs of arsenic or strychnine poisoning. So she was arrested in 1916. Uh, they charged her for all five deaths, but she only ended up going on trial for her second husband's. The jury convicted her of first-degree murder and sentenced her to death. Her lawyer appealed, and in 1919, she got a new trial where she pleaded insanity, uh, and this time was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. And then in 1924, the state transferred her to a general hospital for the insane, where she remained until her death in 1962. So she was still alive and in hospital when that comedy film about what she'd done came out Bloody with Gary Grant. I bet she watched it. Oh yeah. <laughs> I bet they did a. I bet they did a showing in the hospital. <laughs> um, it was it was partly as a result of this in 1917 that the state introduced a bill that required licensing of elder care facilities which now had to receive inspections and submit annual death reports. Um, but yeah, that story also caught the attention of the playwright, uh, Joseph Kesselring, who's in his early teens at the time. And um, he wrote this play version of it and reached out to the attorney, Hjorkorn, um, to get the court documents. And then they put on Arsenic and Old Lace as a play on Broadway in 1941. So it was three years before the film. Um, <laughs> The uh, Alcorn, the, the attorney, attended the show, but uh, apparently didn't like it very much. Uh, <laughs> but it was a success and it was adapted into a film and it is now a Halloween classic. Famous arsenic information. Um, I, I thought about looking up sort of how, how toxic things are determined. Like, what is the scale? Okay. Um, and I discovered the LD50. Um, so that's the median lethal dose, which, if you remember your maths, is how much would it take for it to affect 50% of the population? So that's the common measure of substance uh, toxicity. Uh, usually tested on mice, uh, just so you know, but they kind of measure it per kilogram of body weight. Um, so this is how much it would, it would kind of take per kilogram. Scale it up yourself. <laughs> um, the least toxic thing is water. Uh, on this scale, which would require about 90,000 milligrams per kilogram of body weight to become toxic. Okay, that's a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, just below water is sucrose, common sugar, 29,700 milligrams per kilogram, whereas vitamin C is 11,900 milligrams. So the, the story is, go nuts for sugar. <laughs> um, 
have all the sugar, I think, is what we're learning. There are some nuances to this scale of toxicity. Um, what we all want to know is how toxic is booze. Yes. Ethanol, you can have uh, 7,060 milligrams per kilogram before it um, is too toxic. Whereas caffeine is 195 milligrams per kilogram. No way. Just to put that in perspective. Ethanol, as it turns out, not that bad. <laughs> Give me the booze and sugar, um, everyone. <laughs> right. Arsenic we've just spoken about, that's 763 milligrams. Mm-hmm. Uh, nicotine, 50 milligrams. Oh, my God. Yeah. I know. It's Comparing one next to another is kind of wild. Guess what's just slightly um, lower, as in you, you can have less of, than nicotine on 47.2 milligrams. It's capsaicin, a.k.a. what makes chilies hot. Bloody hell. <laughs> it's funny because that's like a plant's defence against being eaten, capsaicin. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, humans love it. Yeah. Stupid, <laughs> stupid humans. Hydrogen cyanide is 3.7 milligrams. Strychnine is one milligram. And then... We get onto the really bad stuff, fentanyl. <laughs> so this is, if you read the, if you read the news, particularly in the US, this is the prescription drug that has caused an opioid crisis, mm-hmm. uh, particularly over there. Um, it's thirty micrograms, so that's less than one milligram. That's less than strychnine, um, and that's about the same as ricin, which is one of the most poisonous naturally occurring substances, and it comes from. Do you know where ricin comes from? It's not rice. Wasn't there a chocolate bar called ricin? Reason. <laughs> I hope not. Reason. Ricin. I'm sure there was. <laughs> I hope there isn't a chocolate bar called ricin. <laughs> it comes from castor beans. Okay. Yeah, castor beans. Um, some beans can be very toxic if you don't soak them or, or, or cook them properly. I know that's a pet fear of yours. <laughs> <laughs> what, beans? <laughs> Not not cooking beans properly. You told me before. I told you I was cooking some kidney beans once in the instant pot, and you said that you were too scared to cook dried beans because you heard they're toxic. Yeah, I don't. It scares me. I freak out when I make yeah. lentils. <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing toxic about lentils. You can't poison yourself with lentils. It's just some beans. But yeah, the worst one is castor beans. You can. Um, it's not in the oil. So the thing that makes it really toxic is not in the oil. So you will get castor oil, and that's fine although they do still pasteurize it to make sure that anything toxic is denatured but yeah if you were to like chew up you know grind up raw beans um, it can be pretty fatal there's there's um, some examples of that in the world um the most toxic thing apart from like you know radiation poisoning um but that you could possibly ingest is do you know what that is no is it no I'm, i have no idea okay so this this is even more toxic than ricin and fentanyl it's botulinum toxin which is produced by the bacterium clostridium botulinum which can cause botulism hmm. what do we use it for christ knows knowing us something stupid botox christ alive <laughs> so botox comes from it's 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 botulism um and that's because it's it's paralyzing um we do we we do also use it for, i mean it's just funny to kind of put it that way we do use it for useful things as well for like muscle disorders cerebral palsy mm-hmm. uh, strabismus migraines sweating so really poisonous stuff used properly can have interesting applications um but yeah, it is quite funny that Botox is the the most toxic thing you can uh, <laughs> put in a body. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed looking through that list. That was a very short version. I could have gone on for ages about um, the relative values. But um, if you've got, you know, if you've got a spare half hour, look up the LD50. <laughs> Over to you. Um, I'm going to talk about Aquatofana. Are you uh, familiar with it? Um is is she in um Nora from Queens? Uh no, she's was in like I think it was Drag Race Canada. I don't know. Oh right, okay. Um 
No, Aquatavana, um, it was a strong poison created in Sicily around 1630. Uh, it was apparently widely used in Palermo, Naples, Pru uh, Perugia, Rome, um, and it's been associated with a lady called Guilia Tofana. Um, so this is a lady from Palermo. She's said to be the leader of a ring of six poisoners in Rome who sold Aqua Tofana to would-be widows. And is it Guilia or is it Julia? Ah, Christ knows. <laughs> you, you can... It's probably, it's probably Julia. Julia? Guilia? Is it is it G U I? Uh no, it's G I U. Yeah. Julia. Julia. Okay, Julia yeah, Tafana. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the first recorded mention of Aqua Tafana is from sixteen thirty two, um, when it was used by two women, Francesca and Teofania. I hope I said those two correct. <laughs> Uh, it was used by those ladies to poison their victims. It may have been invented by and named after Teofania. She was executed for her crimes, but several women associated with her included, included Julia, uh, who may have been her daughter. Um, it's apparently, apparently she moved on to Rome and continued manufacturing and distributing the poison beyond this. Uh, it was also given a trade name. <laughs> the trade name trade. for the poison was Mana di San Nicola. Um, so they think that was a marketing device to try and divert the authorities because the open was uh, the poison was openly sold as both a cosmetic and a, a devotionary object in vials. It had a picture of Saint Nicholas on it. So Mana di San Nicola was also its trade name. It's said that over 600 victims are alleged to have died from the poison, mostly husbands. Mm. Um, the active ingredient... That feels very Italian. Oh yeah, it is, isn't it? This should be a Netflix yeah. series. <laughs> <laughs> the active... Well, I mean, if you watch the Medicis, I mean, that's a Netflix series about saying there's always a lot of poisoning going on there. <laughs> it's very much their, bad, their brand. Sorry, carry on. Um, the active ingredients of the mixture... Um, they're known, but it's not kind of known how they were blended together. Uh, so it contained mostly arsenic and lead and possibly belladonna. Um, it was a colourless, tasteless liquid, therefore it was easily mixed with water or wine or food. Um, it was also perfect because it was very slow acting um, and the symptoms were very similar to a progressive disease or other natural causes. Symptoms seen um, were similar to arsenic poisoning. So the first small dosage would be a cold-like symptom. Uh, by the third dose, the victim would be quite ill. Um, symptoms would include vomiting, dehydration, diarrhoea and a burning sensation in the digestive system. The fourth dose usually would likely kill the victim. And because it was slow acting, it allowed victims to prepare for their death. They just thought they had a progressive disease and the end was nigh. So they'd often include writing a will and repenting. Um, a little bit about Julia, <laughs> Julia Tofana. Um, so information about her background is quite sparse. Um, so it's thought that she's born in Palermo. Um, speculation by historians say that she had taken the first name of her mother as her last name, which was a very common practice at the time, um, which led them to believe that she was the daughter of that um, other poisoner, Tofania Diadamo. So she was accused of poisoning with an arsenic concoction of her own invention. She was executed on the 12th of July, 1633. According to one version of events, it was not long after she was executed, when Julia fled to Rome and set up her own poisoning ring and began to sell this poison to women who wanted to escape abusive or inconvenient spouses. There were said to have been six women working in the poison ring, um, active in the 1650s. Uh, there are many versions of her death. Um, one... Um, the main one, which isn't as exciting as the others, but it's the one that most of the historians point to, uh, she apparently died in her sleep 
1651 with no one aware of her poisoning activities. Uh, confusion of her activities with other poisoners active in the area have led to tales that she died in um, 1659 or 1709 or 1730. Um, there's further elaboration that she took sanctuary in a convent and continued to manufacture and distribute poison for many years until she was found out, executed, and her body was thrown over the wall of the church that provided her sanctuary. Um, another story goes that one of her clients used, um, well, decided to use Aquatofana to kill her husband. She'd put a few drops in his soup and had taken it to the table. But when he brought the bowl to his lips, she had a change of heart. She begged him not to drink the soup and eventually, perhaps after being beaten, had to admit that she'd poisoned it. She then told her husband where she'd purchased the poison. And that's when uh, Julia was caught and executed. Uh, another version suggests that women had started confessing murder to their priests. Um, at the same time, people had also started to notice that was a, an influx of young widows that were abundant. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was thought then that perhaps she was arrested, tortured and put on trial after she had admitted poisoning. So... Yeah, it's not very clear about how she died, but um, there are sources to prove that she did have a poisoning ring in Italy in the 1600s. Um, and there's an interesting story that I'm going to finish with, Mozart. Uh, Mozart himself believed that he was poisoned using aqua tofana. <laughs> um, he apparently wrote, I know I must die. Someone has given me aqua tofana and has calculated the precise time of my death, for which they have ordered a requiem. It is for myself I am writing this. Um, but lots of people contest that. Um, apparently he was very ill for months um, and he travelled while he was ill. He was not in the same place. It's very unlikely that he was being consistently poisoned with aquatofana and he would have died a lot sooner um so people can test it but he himself was convinced he'd been poisoned with aquatofana it's probably got something to do with the fact that he was a bit of a player maybe some jilted women and he was like if i'm being ill i am very likely poisoned by one of the many women i've wronged mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh should we do some more murders yeah i'm enjoying the murder chat Okay, I'm going to tell you about the Paraquat murders. These were a series of indiscriminate beverage poisonings carried out in Japan in 1985. You heard of this? No. Okay, so these this is quite disturbing. Um, these are this drinks were placed um, in or near vending machines where the victim would consume the beverage and they were all poisoned with the herbicide paraquat, except for one that was poisoned with diquat. Um, so the first victim was 52-year-old Haruo Otsu, according to New York Times, um, who was in uh, Fukuyama in the Hiroshima prefecture in uh, 1985. And he stopped by a vending machine on his way to go fishing, purchased two bottles of Oranamin C, Halfway through his second bottle, he began to feel sick, was taken to hospital where he died the next night. 35 poisonings followed Harrow's, with 11 of them resulting in death between April 30th and November 17th uh, of the same year. And they primarily occurred in Western Japan. And Oranamin C was the primary drink target. So this drink had a buy one, get one free promotion on uh, at the time of the crimes. And they were taking advantage of that. So the criminals lacing the Oranamin C bottles with Paraquat, placing them around the vending machines to make customers think they'd got the promotion. Um, the murders stopped after warnings were posted on vending machines by both the vending machine operators and drink companies. But the murderer was never caught and remains at large to this day. I mean, if they're still alive. Uh, it was established that at least one other person um, who was unknown attempted to imitate the murders by putting lime sulphur into drinks in Tokyo. And there were also some people who attempted to poison themselves in a method imitating the murders. There, 
there are some interesting kind of writings and ideas about why this would be unique to Japanese culture, um, which is all about kind of a, se a, a sense of a loss of self from working too hard, but I won't go into that today. Um, <laughs> in the um, So in the midst of the poisonings, the Japanese Soft Drink Bottlers Association um, shifted the blame onto the victims, <laughs> said uh, customers should notice broken seals, saying if only customers were more cautious, they would have seen that some tampering had been done. Despite that, they did issue 1.3 million warning stickers to be placed on vending machines, and vending machine operators posted their own warnings, advising against taking abandoned drinks found in or around the machines. Advice for all, I think. <laughs> Do not take abandoned drinks and drink them. Have you heard of the expression drinking the Kool-Aid? I have. I've no idea where it's from, but I've heard of it. Do you know what it means? Nope. <laughs> okay, so it's an expression generally that's used to refer to a person who um, believes in possibly a doomed or a dangerous idea, um, usually because they think there would be potential high rewards. So it's got this quite negative connotation. It can also be used sort of ironically to refer to set, accepting an idea or changing a preference due to popularity or peer pressure or persuasion. So it's kind of all about making bad choices, really, and buying into someone else's idea. Um, so it's kind of evolved to, more recently, to mean quite extreme dedication to a cause or purpose. Uh, so, it's so extreme that, you know, you would die for a cause. Now, the phrase itself probably dates back to 1968 with a, um, a book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which was a non-fiction book about putting LSD into Kool-Aid as a sort of acid test for being part of counterculture. So the whole beatnik generation and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I think it's more strongly associated with the events in Jonestown in Guyana in 1978, in which over 900 members of the People's Temple movement died. The movement's leader, Jim Jones, called a mass meeting at the Jonestown Pavilion after the murder of US Congressman Leo Ryan and others in nearby Port uh, Kaituma. So Jones proposed this revolutionary suicide by way of ingesting a powdered drink mix, which was actually made from Flavor Aid, um, which has been misidentified as Kool Aid now but everyone associates it with that. And it was laced with uh, cyanide and other drugs. So the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid, as used to describe either blind obedience or loyalty to a cause, is considered offensive by a lot of the relatives of the dead and survivors who escaped Jonestown. Because even though kind of what most people know about it is these people were in a cult, they drank this poison Kool-Aid because um, Jim Jones told them to. That's not the whole truth by any means. Um, 70 or more individuals at Jonestown were injected with the poison. A third of them were children. Guards armed with guns and crossbows were ordered to shoot the people who fled Jonestown Pavilion as Jones was lobbying for the suicide. So it wasn't quite, you know, as, um, as drinking the Kool-Aid as people think. In February 2012, Drinking the Kool-Aid won first place in an online poll by Forbes magazine as the single most annoying example of business jargon. <laughs> um, other terms that were included in it were leverage, it is what it is, core competency, give 110%, reach out, take offline, lots of moving parts, vertical, empower, and peel the onion. Oh, I feel like I'm back at Microsoft. It really makes me feel sick. <laughs> Anything you want to throw into the mix there? Uh, let's deep dive this. Park it. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, horrible. Yeah. Do you know what I read today? I won't call any particular names, but um, I read the word revert today, which just means I'll reply to you. I will. I will email you, or I will speak to you. But people go, I will revert on this. Mm. Just oh, shut up. Anyway. Um. Also on um, Kool-Aid, so in the book Rage by Bob Woodward, um, it, which is a book that was based on 18 interviews with Donald Trump, uh, Woodward quotes Trump's reaction to his question about the responsibility of white wealthy people who should help understand general population motivations around Black Lives Matter. Um, 
and he said, you really drank the Kool-Aid, didn't you? Just listen to you. So there you go. Favourite term by Donald Trump. Everyone's least favourite business jargon. And as it turns out, pretty offensive to the swipers of Jonestown. So don't use it. Uh, <laughs> I mentioned the, um, the poison they used for that was cyanide. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'll speak a little bit about that. So in chemistry, cyanide, uh, which comes from the um, Greek kyanos, uh, which means dark blue. It's a chemical compound that contains um, a triple bonded carbon atom to a nitrogen atom. So there's different versions of it. They are produced by certain bacteria, fungi, algae. It is an antifeedant, um, which, as I mentioned before, is something that's produced specifically to repel herbivores um, in a number of plants. That's the word for it, antifeedant. Um, and it's also found in substantial amounts in certain seeds and fruit stones. As we mentioned in our nuts episode, when we learned that amaretto is often made from these fruit stones, not just almonds, apricots, um, peaches, but yep, cyanide you find within those. Not with an amaretto, it's been treated properly. Uh, <laughs> I mentioned co-evolution earlier. This is, this is an example of it. The Madagascar bamboo produces cyanide as a deterrent to grazing. And in response, the golden bamboo lemur it, um, has a high tolerance to cyanide, so it can keep eating it. <laughs> There you go. That that feels like it could make it into an Agatha Christie novel at some point. Well, not at some point, she's dead, but it, feel, it feels like it could have been. Golden Bamboo Lima being uh, tolerant to cyanide. Uh, the toxicity of cyanide is because it has the ability to bind to and shut down the enzyme cytochrome oxidase 8, um, which is the membrane in the membrane of the mitochondria, which, as we know from biology, is the powerhouse of the cells. And the correct functioning of the enzyme is essential for energy production and uses oxygen. Um, it's the final step in the oxidation of glucose. So when cyanide renders that enzyme inactive, oxygen in the blood can no longer be used. And that's how you can tell, one of the ways you can tell actually if someone's been poisoned with cyanide because their blood will be bright red from the oxygenated blood still. Mm. Uh, top tips. Uh, <laughs> So while cyanide can be used for some beautiful purposes like colouring in sculpture and jewellery, um, it's been used a lot throughout history to poison humans, particularly as hydrogen cyanide gas, which was a compound of Zyklon B in the Holocaust. Um, a famous and unsolved case involving cyanide poisoning is that of the Tylenol murders. Tylenol is like a sort of uh, paracetamol uh, brand in the US mostly, I think. And these murders began in Chicago in 1982, when 12-year-old Mary Kellerman was given a painkiller by her parents. The child woke from sleep complaining of cold and died a few hours later. The same day, 27-year-old postal worker Adam Janus died from similar circumstances, and the deaths continued. Um, and with the help of the Rocky Mountain Poison Centre, the link was made to the victims taking Tylenol and the poison potassium cyanide. So the perpetrator had bought several bottles of Tylenol, opened and emptied some of the capsules, and then replaced the contents with potassium cyanide before placing the bottles back on the shelves uh, for innocent customers to purchase. Um, and no one was ever caught for those murders. There's quite a lot of, like, putting products back and people not being caught for it, going on yeah, poisoning, scary, which I find very it? disturbing. Yeah, I don't like it. Like, much more than being face-to-face -face with a perpetrator, you know? Never knowing. Yeah. Always check your seals. <laughs> orf, orf, orf. It <laughs> um, <laughs> was not appropriate. Um, Belladonna, or Deadly Nightshade, uh, I've got an, an example of that. So atropine is the, um, is the poison that comes from that. So there was, um, fairly modern case, uh, Alexandra Agata and... Um, and poison atropine, which is a, a poisonous alkaloid. So atropine is white, it's odourless, but it does have a very bitter taste. Uh, it's found in Deadly Nightshade, a single berry of which can kill a young child. Atropine works by blocking certain nerve receptors, particularly in the brain um, and certain muscles, and as a result interrupts the activity of the messenger molecule. Um, so victims start to feel hot as their body temperature increases, their vision becomes blurred and the mouth dry. Um, and this is what happened to her. So in 1994, Alexandra's husband, uh, Paul Agata, tried to murder his wife using atropine, disguising its very bitter taste in a gin and tonic. Um, 
He then tried to send the authorities on a wild goose chase by spiking several bottles of tonic water with atropine and placing them on the shelves of supermarkets in Edinburgh. So yet another putting products back. Thankfully, his wife did notice that it was extra bitter, didn't finish the gin and tonic, and also the husband had miscalculated how much poison to use. So uh, they were able to save her life, although she did remain very ill for some time afterwards when he was caught. So that's a good one. Sort yeah. of. All right, I'm, I think I'm murdered out, um, sort <laughs> of. I have got something very nice and Halloween-y to end on, but have you got anything else before we close out? I think I'm done. I'm poisoned and murdered out. Mm-hmm. So, um, aside from... Aside from this year's Eurovision, what do you know about the works of Edgar Allan Poe? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't think so. Um, Poe, 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 Poe. Right, so I, there's a story, a short story called The Cask of Amontillado. Uh, Amontillado is a sherry. It's a sherry wine. Um, I was going to describe it to you initially. Um, and then I thought, why describe it when I could just read it? <laughs> Do you want story time? Please. Fortunato had hurt me a thousand times and I had suffered quietly. But then I learned that he had laughed at my proud name, Montresor, the name of an old and honoured family. I promised myself that I would make him pay for this, that I would have revenge. You must not suppose, however, that I spoke of this to anyone. I would make him pay, yes, but I would act only with the greatest care. I must not suffer as a result of taking my revenge. A wrong is not made right in that manner, and also the wrong would not be made right unless Fortunato knew that he was paying and knew who was forcing him to pay. I gave Fortunato no cause to doubt me. I continued to smile in his face, and he did not understand that I was now smiling at the thought of what I planned for him at the thought of my revenge. Fortunato was a strong man, a man to be feared, but he had one great weakness. He liked to drink good wine, and indeed he drank much of it. So he knew a lot about fine wines and proudly believed that he was a trained judge of them. I too knew old wines well, and I bought the best I could find. And wine, I thought, wine would give me my revenge. It was almost dark, one evening in the spring, when I met Fortunato in the street alone. He spoke to me more warmly than was usual, for already he had drunk more wine than was good for him. I acted pleased to see him and shook his hand, as if he had been my closest friend. Fortunato, how are you? Montresor, good evening, my friend. My dear Fortunato, I am indeed glad that I have met you. I was just thinking of you, for I have been tasting my new wine. I have bought a full cask of a fine wine, which they tell me is Amontillado, but Amontillado? Quite impossible. I know, it does not seem possible, as I could not find you. I was just going to talk to Lucrece. If anyone understands wines, it is Lucrece. He will tell me, Lucrece? He does not know one wine from another. But they say he knows as much about wines as you know. Huh. Come, let us go. Go where? To your vaults to taste the wine. No, my friend, no, I can see that you are not well and the vaults are cold and wet. I do not care, let us go, I'm well enough. The cold is nothing. Amontillado, someone is playing games with you. And Lucrece, ha, Lucrece knows nothing about wines, nothing at all. As he spoke, Fortunato took my arm and I allowed him to hurry me to my great stone palace where my family, the Montresors, had lived for centuries. There was no one at home. I had told the servants that they must not leave the palace, as I would not return until the following morning, and they must care for the place. This, I knew, was enough to make it certain that they would all leave as soon as my back was turned. I took down from, the pa from their places on the wall two brightly burning lights. I gave one of these to Fortunato and led him to a wide doorway. There we could see the stone steps going down into the darkness. Asking him to be careful as he followed, I went down before him, down under the ground, deep under the old walls of my palace. We came finally to the bottom of the steps and stood there a moment together. The earth which formed the floor was cold and hard. 
we were entering the last resting place of the dead of the Montresor family. Here too we kept our finest wines, here in the cool, dark, still air under the ground. Fortunato's step was not sure, because of the wine he had been drinking. He looked uncertainly around him, trying to see through the thick darkness which pushed in around us. Here our brightly burning lights seemed weak indeed, but our eyes soon became used to the darkness. We could see the bones of the dead lying in large piles among the walls. The stones of the walls were wet and cold. From the long rows of bottles which were lying on the floor among the bones, I chose one which contained a very good wine. Since I did not have anything to open the bottle with, I struck the stone wall with it and broke off the small end. I offered the bottle to Fortunato. Here, Fortunato, drink some of this fine medoc. It will help to keep us warm. Drink! Thank you, my friend. I drink to the dead who lie sleeping around us. And I, Fortunato, I drink to your long life. Ah, very fine wine indeed. But the Amontillado? Oh, it is farther on. Come. We walked on for some time. We were now under the river's bed, and water fell in drops upon us from above. Deeper into the ground we went, past still more bones. Your vaults are many and large. There seems to be no end to them. We are a great family and an old one. It is not far now, but I can see you are trembling with the cold. Come, let us go back before it is too late. It is nothing. Let us go on. B but first, another drink of your medoc. I took up from among the bones another bottle. It was another wine of a fine quality. A de Grave. Again, I broke off the neck of the bottle. Fortunato took it and drank it all without stopping for a breath. He laughed and threw the empty bottle over his shoulder. We went on deeper and deeper into the earth. Finally, we arrived at a vault in which the air was so old and heavy that our lights almost died. Against three of the walls, there were piles of bones higher than our heads. From the fourth wall, someone had pulled down all the bones, and they were all spread all around us on the ground. In the middle of the wall was an opening into another vault, if I can call it that. A little room, about three feet wide, six or seven feet high, and perhaps four feet deep. It was hardly more than a hole in the wall. Go on, I said. Go in. The Amontillado is in there. Fortunato continued to go forward uncertainly. I followed him immediately. Soon, of course, he reached the back wall. He stood there for a moment, facing the wall, surprised and wondering. In that wall were two heavy iron rings. A short chain was hanging from one of these, and a lock from the other. Before Fortunato could guess what was happening, I closed the lock and chained him tightly to the wall. I stepped back. Fortunato, I said, put your hand against the wall. You must feel how the water runs over it. Once more, I ask you, please, will you not go back? No? If not, then I must leave you. But first I must do everything I can for you. But, but the Amontillado. Ah, uh, yes, yes indeed, the Amontillado. As I spoke these words, I began to search among the bones. Throwing them to one side, I found the stones which earlier I had taken down from the wall. Quickly I began to build the wall again, covering the hole where Fortunato stood trembling. Montresor, what are you doing? I continued working. I could hear him pulling at the chain, shaking it wildly. Only a few stones remained to put in their place. Montresor, <laughs> that is a very good joke indeed. Many times we will laugh about it <laughs> as we drink our wine together. <laughs> of course, as we drink the Amontillado. But is it not late? Should we not be going back? They will be expecting us. Let us go. Yes, let us go. As I said this, I lifted the last stone from the ground. Montresor, for the love of God. Yes, for the love of God. I heard no answer. Fortunato, I cried. Fortunato. I heard only a soft, low sound, a half cry of fear. My heart grew sick. It must have been the cold. I hurried to force the last stone into its position, and I put the old bones again in a pile against the wall. 
For half a century now, no human hand has touched them. May he rest in peace. <laughs> Very good. Uh, I thought I'd end on something that wasn't a poisoning, but was a poisoned mind using delicious wine to entrap someone and put them in a wall. And then I think that's like the first example of that story, like that kind of murder category of putting someone in the wall and then uh, bricking them up. Mm. <laughs> Dark. <laughs> Do you enjoy story time? I did. I loved it. Perfect. Good. If you've got any more time over Halloween, I highly recommend reading some Poe. He's a delight. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anything else? Um, I'm, no. Well, in that no. case, uh, no. I guess it's time to say that our glasses have run dry, which means it's... <laughs> it's... <coughs> Sorry. Oh no. <coughs> it's time to. <coughs> Don't die, I can't do the intros.